Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Um, as, as Bob has said, as uh, Miss Kathy has said, um, this is a weekend when we remember those who have served our country and paid the ultimate price so that we might live in freedom to uh, do the things that, uh, that we want to do. Um, and we remember those people today and their families. And I also want us to remember the one who laid down his life for us, for our spiritual freedom, for the freedom to worship God, to call him our father, to be able to look forward one day to eternal life with Jesus Christ our Lord and God our Father and the Holy Spirit. I want to tell you a little story this morning um, as we uh, go into a new uh, sermon series. Uh, some of you might know this story. Some of you have seen the movie based on uh, this person's life. I want to tell you the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini was a young man uh, who faced a lot of obstacles. He faced a lot of trouble. Um, he was the child of Italian immigrants. Uh, he did not speak English uh, for many years. And because he was unable to speak much English by the time he started school, uh, he was bullied a lot. A lot of people would, would pick on him and bully him, uh, make fun of him, and beat him up. And soon Louis learned to fight and to defend himself. Uh, he grew into a rebellious teenager. Uh, he took up smoking, he took up drinking, found himself in trouble with the law. Uh, he would skip school often. Uh, every once in a while, you might find him uh, shoplifting something and being caught very quickly by the police. He was not a very good criminal, was Louis Zemperini. Um, but one person in his life saw something more in him. His brother Pete um, saw an opportunity for Louis because uh, Pete had seen Louis run away from policemen, and he was really fast. Most of the time, the policemen couldn't catch up to him. They had to have somebody come around on the other side. And Pete realized, wow, Louis is really, really fast. Let's see if we can get him into the, the track and field team. And that's what he did. He started training uh, Louis to become a runner. And that's what he did. Uh, he stopped smoking. He stopped drinking. He stopped getting in trouble. And he dedicated his life to running. He was running everywhere. And Louis was so fast that in 1936 in Berlin, Germany, Louis competed in the Olympics. And he ran the 5,000 meter was his, uh, was his race. Uh, he did not win the race. He came in eighth. But his last lap was recorded as one of the fastest on record. He ran the last lap of the 5,000 meter in 56 seconds which was incredible, so incredible in fact, that uh, Adolf Hitler came and introduced himself and shook Louis's hand. And rather ironically, in 1941, Louis joined the Army Air Force where he fought the forces of Germany and Japan in World War II. And in May 1943, uh, Louis's plane went down. He was actually looking for another plane that had gone down, and they sent his plane with, his, with, with three people on it to look for that plane, and their plane went down because of mechanical failures. Um, and Louis survived uh, for 47 days 
on a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, often uh, sunburnt and, and, and being attacked by sharks. Um, they were able to capture a couple of albatross and use those for food and for bait to catch fish and do all these 47 days out in the, in the middle of the Pacific on these life rafts. And of course, uh, a couple of times, Japanese planes would fly over and strafe the life raft and, and try to, to sink these rafts. And Louis survived all that. And then on the 47th day, he ran aground on the Marshall Islands, which was held by the Japanese, and the Japanese immediately took him as a prisoner of war. And as a POW, Louis was uh, tortured by sadistic prison guards. He was beaten. Uh, he was subject to psychological warfare. He was starved. He was dehydrated. And he spent the next two years as a prisoner of war, just being wailed on and wailed on. Some of you may have seen the movie Unbroken, which came out several years ago. This is the story of Louis Zamperini's life and his time as a POW. Finally, in August 1945, Louis uh, was released, or, well, rescued, because the Japanese finally had surrendered, and he was able to, uh, with his fellow prisoners, be rescued. As you might imagine, Louis suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. He suffered from nightmares, and his nightmares were kind of unusual, not because he was having them, and not because he was having them about his captors, these, these guards who would just wail upon him and punish him. No, his nightmares were unusual because in his dreams, he was the one that was torturing and beating the prison guards. And these nightmares would keep him awake night after night after night. And he started drinking again, and he just, just did not have a really good life after the war until his wife one day encouraged him to attend a Billy Graham crusade in Los Angeles, California. And Louis didn't want to go. He went because he wanted to make his wife happy. Men, we go a lot of places because we want to make our wives happy. We're just going to sit there. We're going to just zone out. Except Louis didn't. Louis didn't zone out. He heard the message of Billy Graham, this evangelist, and Louis gave his life to Jesus Christ by the end of that week. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, who had entered Louis after he became a Christian, he was able in his heart, in his mind, to forgive his captors. He was able to put that part of his life behind him. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, his nightmares stopped. And Louis actually went on to travel to Japan. And he went to the prisons where his guards were held captive. And he, face to face, offered forgiveness to these guards. And it's said that several of the guards came to Jesus Christ because of Louis's forgiveness. This is the power of the Holy Spirit that Louis had, and this same power of the Holy Spirit that, that fell on Louis when he became a Christian in Los Angeles, California, in that revival tent, is the same power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us 
It fell upon us first on the day of Pentecost. And if you're not aware, today is Pentecost Sunday. And the power of the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples of Jesus Christ as tongues of fire. And it set on each of them. And they were able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to start Christ's church. And it is that power in our lives that help us to love and to serve and to forgive. This morning we're starting a new sermon series titled, I'm Not, I Am. And over the next few weeks we're going to look at some stories in the Bible that tell of people facing some overwhelming challenges. And we're going to see how their responses to these challenges that have been placed to them by God, how their responses helped them to overcome obstacles, to overcome these things that would otherwise in our own human hearts be considered impossible so that they might serve God and so they might serve others. And our first story comes from the Old Testament book of Exodus in chapters 3 and 4, which tells the story of Moses and his encounter with God's power at a burning bush. And if you've been in church for any amount of time, you know the story of Moses and the burning bush. But we're going to take a look at that story a little more closely. Because if you think about this idea of the burning bush in the Old Testament and the tongues of fire in the New Testament, you start to see some really interesting parallels between what happened to Moses and what happened to the disciples when they first encountered the Holy Spirit. And when we meet Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he's living in self-imposed exile. He had killed a man. He killed an Egyptian who was beating up on one of his people, one of the Hebrews. And the next day, it's discovered that the Hebrews knew exactly what he did. And so Moses ran. He ran away. He went to a land called Midian. He started living and working for the priest of Midian and... He ended up getting married, having children, building a life. He became a sheep herder. And Exodus chapter 3 picks up 40 years after Moses has run away from Egypt. He has run away, left his people behind, and he is basically living as an exile. And God ends up appearing to Moses in a burning bush. And Moses sees this bush out in the, the nighttime and he notices that it's not being burned up. Usually you see a bush on fire, it goes out after a few minutes. This bush kept burning and kept burning. And, and Moses said, well, that's odd. I'm going to go check that out. I've never seen a bush not burn up before. I want to go see what's going on. And we see, starting in verse 4, when the Lord saw that Moses had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Not sure that would be the first thing I would say when I heard a voice coming out of a bush on fire, but this is what Moses said, here I am. Then God said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. 
So obviously Moses believes that this is God talking to him, and he's scared to death, and he hides his face. He might even have been down on the ground covering his head. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. The taskmasters were the Egyptians. I know their sufferings. The, the Hebrews were slaves under the Egyptians, and the, the, the Egyptians were harsh, harsh taskmasters. And God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. This is the moment that Israel has been waiting for, for 400 years. For 400 years, they lived in Egypt. And for the first 70 to 100 years, things were great. Things were wonderful. And then all of a sudden... The Hebrews started having babies. They started as 70 people living in the outskirts of this little town in Egypt. And they started growing, and they started growing, and they started growing. And all of a sudden, the people led by Pharaoh, the king, realized that these people were becoming a huge group. These people could, if given the opportunity, take over Egypt. And Pharaoh wasn't going to have that. So Pharaoh placed them into forced labor. He forced them to make bricks. He forced them to do all kinds of work. If they didn't meet their quotas, they were beaten. If they didn't do what they were told, they were withheld food. They were withheld water. It was a really bad situation for 300 of those 400 years. And this is the moment. God is now coming to one of the Hebrews, Moses, and he's saying, I'm about ready to rescue my people, Israel. I'm going to take them out of Egypt. I'm going to take them to a new land. They are going to live wonderfully. And I can imagine Moses' excitement at hearing this news, the people are going to be rescued. I know I haven't lived with them for 40 years, but I still love them. I want to see them rescued. I want to see them get out of slavery. This is wonderful news. And God said, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Uh, you're going to send who now? To do what? 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 Hold, hold on. I mean, Moses, he, he, I think, might have had a little bit of a, you know, mini panic attack here. You're going to send me? I haven't been there 40 years. What are you talking about? And he does. He talks to God. And Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm nobody. I killed a man. I think you're looking for somebody else. I'm not good enough to go into Egypt and talk to the king. Of course, we've got to remember that Moses grew up in the king's house. We heard uh, the, the story a couple of weeks ago from Emma that uh, 
Moses was born and was supposed to have been killed. He, she got, uh, his, his mother laid him into a bed of reeds in this basket, and Pharaoh's daughter took him up out of the river, took him back home, raised him as her own. So Moses knew Pharaoh, but he still didn't think he was good enough. And God answers Moses in verse 12. He says, but I will be with you. Isn't that not one of the greatest things that God could ever say to one of us? I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. You will come right here where this bush is and you will worship God. You and all of the Israelites, you're going to come right here. But Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? I'm not sure why this came into Moses' head. What, what's your name? Because the people of Israel had been praying to God for centuries that he would rescue them. What does it matter what his name is? This is just another excuse for Moses maybe not to, uh, not to take on this responsibility, not to take on this task. But God has an answer to that too. God says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, this is the first place in scripture where God names himself. And he names himself I am. And I am is the Hebrew word hayah. And it doesn't just mean I am. It do doesn't mean I exist. What it means is that I am actively present with you. I exist right here. I am with you. And God is saying that he is actively present with his people. And he's telling Moses to tell the leaders that God is the one that's going to be leading us out of Egypt. I'm just the mouthpiece. I'm just the person that he's using. That's what God wants Moses to tell the people. And in verses 15 to 17, God tells Moses to tell the people that he is, has been with them. He is with them now. He will always be with them. That he's going to lead them into this land flowing with milk and honey. He's going to rescue them from slavery. And in verse 18, he tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and say these words. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. That's a really polite request, don't you think? Please, if you don't mind, if it's not too much trouble, can we just leave for three days and go worship our God? That's all we're looking for, Pharaoh. It's a really polite request. But it might be that way because God knows that Pharaoh will not listen to that request. Pharaoh is going to harden his heart and he is going to strike Egypt with even greater torture and greater punishments and greater slavery. And then God tells Moses, well, if he does that, 
If he doesn't grant your request, I am going to strike Egypt with what we know as the, the plagues. God calls them great wonders. And we could read about all of the plagues and all of the things that happened without time this morning. But put yourself in Moses' place. You are just walking along, minding your own business, and all of a sudden you come up on a brush fire. And the brush fire isn't spreading. The brush fire isn't going out. It's just staying there, and you're just watching it saying, hmm, that's interesting. I've never seen a brush fire do that before. Let me go check it out. And then you hear a voice come from inside the brush fire calling you by name. Becky! Don't come any closer, Becky. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. Listen to what I have to say. And then this voice says, I have got a task for you. It's a tiny little thing, nothing really that big. Just go to the king and rescue my entire nation of Israel. Oh, about a 1.4 million people. That's all you got to do. How would you react if you were in that situation? We look at this and we, we hear Moses' um, excuses and we hear his, the, the, the reasons why he doesn't think he can go. And we're going to look at those reasons in Exodus 4.1. He's got some good reasons. Some reasons that maybe we can understand. In Exodus 4, uh, verse 1, Moses says, Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. How many of you, if you encountered God in a burning bush walking down the street and you went to church on Sunday morning and told us what you saw, how many of us would believe you? Really? Come on, guys, you're Christians. You're supposed to believe this stuff. No, we would have a really hard time believing and guess what? God knew that the Israelites would have a hard time believing. And we think, oh, well, that's a, that's a lame excuse. Oh, they won't believe me. Yeah, they wouldn't believe you either. You know what they would call you? Crazy. You got a couple of screws loose. Let's go see some people in a nice padded cell for you for a little while. That's what they would say. But God takes a look at this obstacle that Moses has put up for himself. They're not going to believe me. And he turns it into an opportunity. He actually turns it into three opportunities. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, it's a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran away from it. Anybody ever seen that happen before? But the Lord said to Moses, don't run away. Reach out and catch the serpent by the tail. How many of you have ever handled a snake before? How many of you have ever heard instructions on how to handle a snake before? Guess what? The very first thing that they tell you when you're going to pick up a snake is don't grab it by the tail. Put your foot down on it and grab it near the head so it can't bite you. And here's God saying, grab it by the tail. Go ahead. It's all right. Nothing's going to happen. And Moses reaches down. And his hand caught it. And as soon as his hand caught it, it was a staff again. 
that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. You'll be able to use your staff and you'll be able to throw it down and you'll grab it by the tail and it'll become a staff again and they might believe you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out again, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Anybody know what leprosy is? Yes, it is a flesh-eating disease. God wants Moses to show his people leprosy. And then God wants him to show his hand being healed. God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Now, I want you to imagine these two things. If you're in the group of people that are watching Moses as he's throwing sticks and turning them into serpents, the serpents crawling around, serpents are poisonous snakes. Would you be scared if somebody came in here and took a stick and threw it down and it turned into a snake and started slithering around, who's scared of snakes? Oh, okay, good. How many of you are afraid of, of catching highly contagious diseases? Any highly contagious disease fearers? Yes, thank you very much, Mr. Beeman, is a highly contagious disease fearer, and with good reason. He does not want his hand to turn leprous like snow and fall off onto the ground. But God is showing these things to Moses to show these things to the people so that they can know that it is the power of God. It is the power of God that can make us take up a serpent if God tells us to. Don't just go out into your garden and start picking up snakes. But if God tells you to do that, he will give you the power to do that. He will show you his power to give you a fatal disease and the power to heal you from it. I am, God says. But God's not finished yet. Because he knows that Israel is a stiff-necked people. And he says, if they will not believe you or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they do not even believe these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. God is trying to scare these people to death. God is trying to show his power. God is trying to show that he is rightfully feared. And that if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Moses says, I am not good enough. God says, I am. God equips Moses to perform signs. We might call them miracles. God knows that the people are cynical. He knows that he can't just give one sign for Moses to perform. So he gives him a second sign, and then he gives him a third sign. We all think that when people hear the gospel, they should believe right away. 
It doesn't work that way. And God knows that it doesn't work that way. Sometimes people need to hear the gospel from Tanya, and then they need to hear it from John, and then they need to hear it from somebody else at work or at school or someplace else or family or friends or a televangelist or whatever. People don't just believe in most cases. That is why God gave Moses multiple signs, multiple ways to show I am. So don't get discouraged when you talk about Jesus Christ to people and they blow you off. Because all God is asking you to do is do what he asked you to do. Share the gospel with that person. God will take care of the rest. You might be planting that first seed. You might be watering a seed that has been long gestating. You might be the sunshine that shines on that seed that causes it to break up out of the stony ground of the people. God says, don't get discouraged. Just do my will. Do what I'm asking you to do and then trust me. I am. And here we are. Moses has done these things granted by himself, but he has performed these miracles. He has performed these signs. But then he has another excuse. My Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. This is Moses' next, we might call it an excuse. But how many of us use the same excuse? Historians believe that when Moses said that he was slow of speech and of tongue, it meant that he spoke with a stutter. And I've known some people that speak with a stutter. They do not like to talk in public. They do not like to talk to people in general. They actually lose their stutter when they're talking to people that they're really, really comfortable with. And they're not talking about something that makes them uncomfortable. But for the most part, they feel this anxiety. They feel their chest tightening anytime they have to talk in public. Did you know that the number one fear of human beings, they took, they've taken polls in this for like 100 years. The number one fear is public speaking. The number two fear is death. I would rather die than to talk to people. You guys have seen all the memes on Facebook, those introverts, they're talking about, yeah, anytime you need me, don't be afraid to text. I don't want to talk to you on the phone. I definitely don't want to see you in person. I'll send you something. See, we see this as an excuse for Moses, but really it's an excuse for a lot of us. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can get up and talk to people. Moses says, I'm not eloquent enough. And God says, I am. Lord says, who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? This is God telling Moses, I made you the way that you are, and I can make you different. If you will just obey me. I will give you the ability to speak eloquently before a king 
if you will just do it. And God says, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. God gives Moses another opportunity to obey, another opportunity to act on God's behalf to save his people. I am, God says, I am with you. Go to Pharaoh. You have everything you need. And here's Moses' response. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Now, I'm sure he said it slightly differently. It was probably more begging. But I hear it in my head as, oh, my Lord, please send someone else. How often do we experience God asking us to do something? How often do we hear the voice of God maybe asking us to do something that's incredibly challenging? Outside our comfort zone, as the psychologists put it. Maybe God's asking you to leave your job because it's a toxic job and it's causing you to lose faith. Maybe God's calling you to give all of your money to the poor because you care more about your money than you do about the poor. Maybe God is calling you to some dangerous place to preach the gospel in some country far, far away. How often do we say, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not brave enough. And how often does God say, I am. Through my power, you are good enough. You are strong enough. You are smart enough. You are brave enough through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we answer yes to God, His Holy Spirit is going to equip us with every resource that we could possibly need to accomplish His call. I once, early in my, in my pastorship, long ago, not that long ago, but I once expressed my doubts of being a pastor to an older and much, much wiser friend of mine. I wasn't seminary trained. I, I wasn't trained on how to be a pastor. And I told these things to my friend, and my older, much wiser friend looked at me and said, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. God gives you the power to do that which you thought impossible of yourself through his Holy Spirit. And not only will he equip us, he will guide us. He will be with us. I am with you right here, right now, and I will be with you every step of the way as you work to accomplish my will. He will give us the map. He will give us the blueprint. He will show us step by step. It's almost like a paint by numbers with God. When we do his will, he's going to show us how to do it. He's going to show us the things that we need to do next. 
And after he calls us and he equips us and he shows us what he wants to do, he empowers us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do things we never thought possible. When the Holy Spirit filled the disciples on the day of Pentecost, they didn't know what they were in for. But they were empowered. And do you know who got called to preach that day? Peter. The denier. The one that said he didn't even know Jesus. The one who ran away crying. But he came back. He knew Jesus once again. And God called Peter to preach. And Peter was not an eloquent man. He was a fisherman. They were the basest of the base people in that area of the world. Like longshoremen or truckers. They said their mind. They didn't care what anybody thought about what they said. And God called Peter to preach the message of the gospel. And Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit, delivered a 10-minute message to the people in the temple, and 3,000 people were saved. And don't look at me and say, why can't you preach for 10 minutes and have 3,000 people be saved? You're here for 40 minutes. I know, I'm seeing, I see your faces. <laughs> at least he acknowledges it. 3,000 people came to Jesus Christ through a 10-minute message that was empowered by the Holy Spirit from a person who had no business preaching. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. It lives in me, and it lives in you. It's the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And if that power is within you, what can't you do if God calls you to do something? But you know what? God knows it's not always going to be easy. God knows there's going to be trouble and there's going to be trial. You might be persecuted. You might be beaten. You might be killed for doing the things that God has asked you to do. And that is why the Holy Spirit is also a comforter. The Holy Spirit is with you and will be with you every step of the way. And when things are going poorly in our minds, but they are going well with the will of God. The Holy Spirit is there to hold you in His arms, to comfort you, to let you know you're doing exactly what God asks you to do. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. On this Pentecost Sunday, we ought to reflect on the immense power that the Holy Spirit gives us when He dwells in us as disciples of Jesus Christ. It's the power to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's the power to do the will of God in all things, no matter how challenging they are. It's the power to forgive anyone of anything no matter how badly they've hurt us or wronged us, no matter how badly they've hurt our loved ones or wronged our loved ones. 
That is immense power because I got news for you. I can't forgive on my own. I can't. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that I have the ability to forgive what I believe is unforgivable. And if you're honest with yourselves, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that allows you to do the same. When God looks at us, he sees people filled with the Holy Spirit. And because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are good enough. And we are strong enough. And we are brave enough. And we are smart enough. And we are forgiving enough. God sees all of these things in us if we only will obey his word. If we will only do what he asks us to do, not through our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you? Will you use the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to do God's will? If you will, God says, I am. And the love of Jesus Christ will permeate this world if we are willing to say yes. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit, the one that Jesus promised, the one that you sent on this day of Pentecost over 2,000 years ago. The power to equip us to do great things in your name, the power to embolden us to do those things, the power to comfort us when those things are frightening. Father, I ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit this morning on every person in this room. Father, open our hearts. Open our minds. Let us understand the power of the Holy Spirit and let the Spirit work through us to accomplish your will as individuals and as a church. Father, we thank you that we are living in a situation right now where we are free to worship you wherever we want to, whenever we want to. Father, we ask that you would help us to even use that freedom through the power of the Holy Spirit to build your kingdom to see lives saved for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Next week we're going to look at a man who didn't think he was important enough to do the will of God and the work of God as a man who was called by God to do a great thing to rescue God's people. We're going to be looking at a man named Gideon. But for this week, please as we celebrate this Memorial Day, remember those who have given their lives in service to this country, and remember the one who has given his life so that we might live forever. God bless you.